Acts chapter 6 today. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you would pray with me. Lord and Savior, we come today to this passage here in Acts and ask, Lord, that you would help us and guide us in our study. Lord, I pray that when we see this picture of what it means to serve the church and the value that that brings and and the need that we have, Lord, I pray that you would guide us in all truth and wisdom. I pray, Lord, that Redeemer Fellowship Church would be one that reflects what it looks like to care for those in need, to avoid showing uh, partiality, Lord, and that we would be one among whom there is not a person lacking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The role of a deacon, or some would call it the deaconate, this office of deacon that we see in the scriptures alongside that of pastor or shepherd or overseer, whatever word you choose to use in that designation. We like elder here at Redeemer. The role of deacon is one that is placed alongside the role of elder as a sort of partner ministry, as a sort of partner in the care of the church. It's an unfortunate thing, though, that in many churches that we see around us today, the role of a deacon is one that's been distorted, one that's been changed, one that's been increasingly misunderstood in many churches that you see here in our culture today. Oftentimes what you see today is the role of deacon being one simply of groundskeeper, one simply of facility manager. And certainly that's an okay thing for deacons to be doing, to be taken care of, and indeed that falls within the purview of what a deacon is. But deacons are certainly more than just groundskeepers and janitors. In other contexts, you'll see in certain churches the role of deacon, the office of deacon, being elevated even to one that competes with elders to where the, the categories for shepherding and teaching and leading the church and the, the word of God and, and in that way shepherding the church, it begins to contest with the role that God has ordained and given as elder 
or pastor. There are even many churches today in which the deacon board has become more of an executive team, an executive committee that is to govern and, and lead the church and in a sense even become uh, the, the bosses, uh, the board that the pastors themselves report to. And that is another case in which we see an unbiblical example of the deaconate, of the office of deacon in practice in the church. The office of deacon is one that is instituted and that is originated and that is founded in the scriptures with the expressed purpose of serving the congregation. The expressed service of being what the congregation needs, meeting their needs, of, of coming alongside the pastors and elders who have been given the task of preaching and teaching the word of God to meet the needs of the congregation where they are at, whatever those might be. Here in Acts chapter 6, we have presented for us what many would consider to be the institution of the office of deacon. Proto-deacons, some might say these men were. And I would agree with the sentiment that this is the first instance that we see of deacons, even though the, the word deacon is not expressly used here. I think what we see in functionality is the office being represented here in Acts chapter 6. We do see clearly in this passage the necessity of having in the church people who are filled with the Spirit and committed to serving those around them with charity and grace. If a church is lacking in this kind of spirit, spirit of service and of care for one another, then the alternative is inevitably going to set in. There's going to be division, disunity, hard-heartedness towards one another. These are the things that are the beginning to rear their head here in the church in Acts. The division, the disunity, the strife is beginning to kind of come to the surface here in Acts as we see the sin of these people. Because as we know, these people are sinful, like every church member that's ever been found in a church pew. And we see now, though they are saved by grace through their faith in Christ, though they are united together as one body, as one people, even still, sin rears its head. And what we see then is that it is essential for the future of the church that they begin to deal with these issues when they rise up. And the way in which they deal with them is to institute these men specifically and expressly called and instituted to serve the needs of the church. The gospel, you see, is threatened when the church is divided and facing hostility among its members. A biblical church model is one that's able to deal with the issues that arise in the church in a way that promotes gospel unity and brotherly love. This is why, as the title of my sermon illustrates, the point that I hope to get across to you today is that the role of service in the church and this kind of ministry that these men, some might call them deacons, these deacons have been instituted to do is essential to removing threats to the gospel. Because that's exactly what has come up here in our text. And I hope today that we'll see the importance of service, care, kindness, selflessness, and compassion in the kingdom of God. We start with point number, point number one, recognizing the fact that churches have problems. This comes as no shock to us, right? To hear that churches have problems. 
We might sometimes like to think here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, I know I sometimes uh, like to think that we are perfect, we have everything together, we have no issues, but that's a lie. We are a church comprised of sinful people who are deal still dealing with our sins, still fighting against the flesh, still putting to death the old man, and therefore we're a church that has problems. And we see here that even as young as the church in Acts chapter 6 was, the true church, there were still problems that already were rising up in the church and that had to be dealt with, just like any church. To an extent, when we see issues come up in the church, it's, it's, it's our knee-jerk reaction to just want to freak out over it, to just want to act like, man, something is terribly, terribly wrong, and, and maybe we should go find a new church, one that doesn't have these problems. But church family, when we see the reality in the book of Acts, we see that every church has problems. The church under the care of the apostles here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6 had issues. And not just like tiny little no big deal issues, but issues of preference being shown to people based on their ethnicity, based on attributes about them of which they have no control. You see, the issue being, being dealt with here, being addressed as verse number one tells us, is that there were two categories of people. Those who were Hebrew-speaking Jewish background people, those who had come to faith in Christ from the Hebrew side, who spoke Aramaic, who, who had this certain kind of culture and, and language and everything about them, they were now united together with this group of, of Hellenistic Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Those who were Greek-speaking, who kind of had a different culture, a culture that looked more like Roman culture rather than Hebrew culture. And you begin to see a dividing line, a line of hostility being formed between these two sides, between the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, all of which who had now come to faith in Christ, forming the church. We see the issue here is one that is not unlike issues we've seen in our country, right? One of division almost upon ethnic lines. And it's a serious issue to be dealt with. And the apostles know that. They note that this issue matters. It's more than just an issue of maybe someone didn't get a certain amount of food. It's more than just making sure food gets into people's hands. There's a deeper heart issue that the apostles are noting here that they know has to be dealt with. And so they don't, they don't just dismiss it and say, someone else deal with it. They see that it's a serious issue that needs to be resolved, and it's a serious issue because it is a threat to the gospel. The reason this problem mattered and needed to be addressed was because it presented an obstacle or a threat to the kingdom of God, to the proclamation of the gospel. That's why it was a threat. And it was a threat in a sense in a, in a twofold way. For one thing, this kind of disunity, the fact that there were some among the Hellenistic Jews that were being ignored, that weren't getting the supplies that they need, that they were lacking, there was need among them, was not something that the church wanted to reflect. It's a poor reflection on the church if the outside world looks upon us and see people being neglected, see people being forgotten, see people being cast aside. And that's exactly what was beginning to happen here in the book of Acts in Jerusalem. And so this was a poor reflection on the church as these physical needs of the people were being neglected and forgotten. 
And in the second fold way, this issue threatened the unity of the church. The very thing that Christ himself prayed for in John chapter 17. That they would be one as he and the Father are one. That very unity was now being threatened. And any time the unity of the church is being threatened, the gospel is being distorted. That when the world looks at the church and they see disunity, hostility, hatred towards one another, they do not see an accurate picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are serious issues that have risen up in the church, as you can see. Unity and love for one another is an essential part of the church's witness to the world. Therefore, whenever it is threatened, it is essential to deal with it immediately with all wisdom. And so that's what the apostles do. They see this is more important than just making sure that food gets distributed. This is caring for, watching out for the unity of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. And so, point number two, they respond to the problems, but they do so by prioritizing the gospel. It was prioritizing the gospel that led them, that motivated them to solve these issues in the best way that they possibly could. This was their main motivation for the decisions that they make here. That the preaching of the gospel would not be slowed, that it would not be hindered. In verse number two, we read what the apostles say when they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And it's not that the apostles are saying, hey, I'm not a waitress. That's not my job. I'm above that. I'm more important than that. That's not right. That's unjust. Their concern in saying that this is not right is not because of their sake or so that they wouldn't have to lower themselves to this standard. Their concern was that if we dedicate our time to this, it will very quickly begin to take over our time and push the preaching of the gospel and prayer, the ministry that they had been called to, to the back burner. That was the issue that they were wanting to guard against. And so verse says, as they... They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here is the point of appointing others to this task. It's not just so that the apostles didn't have to deal with it. It's not so that they could, uh, could, could keep themselves above sort of that image of a janitor or of a food server. It was more than that. It's so that the ministry of the word could be given the priority that it requires. The issue they wanted to avoid is an issue that a lot of mission work turns into today. Where it moves from a, a going and a proclamation of the gospel, the kingdom of God being spread, the truth of God being revealed, sinners being called to repentance, into simply humanitarian efforts. I know what I have, and perhaps many of you have been on mission trips, if you've grown up in the church, where the gospel was Rarely, if ever, proclaimed. You might have built someone a house. You might have, have, have built some sort of steps. You might have done various things, dug wells, whatever the case might be. And all of that's great. And all of that is fine. But if the proclamation of the gospel is absent, then as you leave that place with a well, with a new house, you leave them dead with it. Dead in their sin. Hopeless even still. That well might last forever, but they certainly will not. 
One day they will perish. And what comes then? The gospel, the, the apostles understood the essential nature of the preaching of the word of God and prayer. And so they say, we, we want the needs to be met. It is not that these needs don't matter. But we need to make sure that we are prioritizing things correctly. Appointing those who are able to do this task so that we can continue what we have been called to do. And that is to preach the word of God faithfully. This does not mean, as some have wrongly understood, that the ministry of service and mercy is not a spiritual service. Point number three, meeting the physical needs is a spiritual task. Meeting physical needs of those in the church as believers is a spiritual task. A practical issue requires a practical solution, doesn't it? And the apostles see that. They see, in a sense, there's a practical issue here where people are being, being neglected in the distribution of goods. All those things that people have been bringing and donating, selling their land, giving money as, anyone, as they could so that there was no need among them. We begin to see now that these funds are not being distributed exactly as they ought. And so the plan that the apostles come up with is that we appoint people to distribute them adequately. And even though this is a very practical solution, it's not only a practical solution. Even in this, the church rightly understood that this problem would require not simply anyone for the task, but that there were specific requirements that needed to be met if someone was going to be given this task. The task was given to these men, that was given to these men, was more than just dishing out food. It was more than that. It was that, but it was more than that. These men were called to a godly spiritual calling upon which the future of the church depended. That's why they took such pains, went to such efforts to make sure that it was not just any person they were putting in charge of this task. That's why the emphasis in the selection of these men is not on how educated they were or how talented they were or what abilities they had. In fact, only two of these men are ever mentioned again in the New Testament. Do you know that? Only two of them. One in the very next story that is to follow, that is the story of Stephen. And then one more, Philip, later on in the book of Acts. But other than that, we hear nothing else about these men. Is it because they weren't that good at their job? Is it because they didn't actually help to expand the gospel of the kingdom? No. It's because they were called to a task of humility, of service. And it is because of these men's faithfulness and faithfulness of men like them that the church is sustained today. The emphasis in the selection of these men is not on their ability, not on their education, but it is on their character. For indeed, they have been called to a spiritual task. Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Here are the requirements that are laid out that these men must meet in order to be qualified for this task. First of all, they have to be men of good reputation, men of dignity, you might say. And this reputation is more than just whether or not the people around them, their friends like them, 
but how are they thought of by the world around them? How are they looked at? How are they viewed by those who see them in the workplace, by those who see them out at the grocery store, by those who interact with them on a daily basis? Do they have a good reputation? It's necessary that these be men of great integrity, of dignity, if they are going to adequately fulfill the task that they've been given. And then second, they must be full of the Spirit. In other words, they must be followers of Christ. They must be true believers filled with the Spirit. Someone might look at the task that they've been given and say, anyone could do this. Anyone could look at the needs, do some simple math work, and distribute as people have need, impartially, as however it needs to be done. But the understanding here clearly is that this is not a task that just anyone can do. We can't outsource this task to the world around us, but rather we need faithful men who know the truth of the gospel to accurately and correctly fulfill and live out the gospel in the life of the church. This again reminds us that this is not just humanitarian effort, but this task that they have before them is a spiritual task. And third, they must be full of wisdom. This would also seem to imply that the men appointed to this task ought not to be new believers. They ought not to be immature in their faith. That's why in 1 Timothy, Paul says that we ought to be slow to lay on hands, that we not appoint someone to a task that they are not ready for, that they are not mature enough for, that they do not have the wisdom for, regardless of how they might be thought of by other people. Wisdom is a necessary ingredient as well. All of this leads us to conclude that this task that they've been given, while it is a dishing out of food and supplying needs, it is more than that. It is caring for the bride of Christ. And this is a spiritual task that these men have been called to. But point number four, this is a church growth strategy that works. A church that is, that is absent, that is empty of those who are called to serve and humble themselves and sacrifice so that the church might benefit and so that the needs around them might be met is a church that will not succeed, that will not last. This is an office instituted by God, the office of deacon, because he knows that the church needs it. Right after this plan is implemented, as these men are selected for this task, those men who have met the qualifications, who fulfill the needs, right after this plan is implemented, we're told of the further success that the church is having in verse number seven. Verse seven, we see in the word of God, continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're told of their further success and more than that, that many of those who came to faith in Christ were priests, were coming out of the Jewish tradition. Even those who were a main part of the Jewish tradition were being brought out of it and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And it seems quite reasonable, and I would agree with what many commentators have said, that many of these priests were likely drawn to Christ, drawn to the gospel and what this church was teaching and preaching and displaying through the charity of the believers and the care that they showed for one another, especially the poor and the weak among them. Because this is in stark contrast to what the Jewish system was doing in this day. To what they were doing in this time. 
You remember what Jesus said about the Jews and about what was taking place in the temple, how they were being taken advantage of by, by the religious leaders of that day? In Luke chapter 20, Jesus speaks in Luke 20, 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and long greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the great. Indeed, it certainly would have been the case that these priests, those who are part of this Jewish system, were seeing the injustices being done. And right after Jesus says this in Luke chapter 20, the very end of the chapter, the very next verses in Luke chapter 21 are the portion of scripture about the poor widow who puts into the offering all that she has. And if you remember, if you were here when we were preaching through Luke, you'll know that, that there are many people who preach that text. In a, and when I say many people, I mean almost everyone preaches and understands that text simply as, Ah, God loves those people who give from all that they have, who give out of nothing. And certainly the, the message of a sacrificial giver is a biblical message. And I would never want to deny that. But notice the point that Jesus is actually making in that story in Luke, where he has just declared what the state is of the Jewish tradition, what the state is of these religious leaders, that they devour widows' houses, verse 47 says. And then chapter 21, verse 1 starts with, and then a widow came in and having only two copper coins put in the last of it into the offering plate. What we actually see in that story is a picture of what Christ was demonstrating. There it is, a widow devoured. She's going to go home now to nothing. Why? Because the system took advantage of her. Because the Jewish leaders, as corrupt as they were, were willing to take all that she had. And that's what leads Jesus, right after that story, to declare that he was going to destroy the temple. Someone looked after he told that story, probably trying to change the subject. And they're like, oh, gee, what do you think of the temple? Isn't it beautiful? Look at, uh, look at how adorned it is. Probably attempting to change the subject, but illustrating the point all the more. That as this widow was just devoured right before their eyes, you look at the grandeur of the temple and the religious people of the day and you see this is not right. I think it's reasonable to believe that these priests saw that also. They saw the widows being devoured. They saw the issues that were taking place by the Jewish leaders. And then they looked at the church and what did they see? There was not a needy person among them. They were specifically designating people to make sure that everyone's needs were met. And so we see here the gospel being preserved. We see obstacles, threats to the gospel being removed. And as they are, more and more people come to faith in Christ. See, not everyone in the church, though, is called to be a deacon. Not everyone is called to that office. So what does this passage mean then to the majority of us in here who perhaps will never serve in the office of a deacon? Certainly we can't say, well, it doesn't matter to me. I'm, I'm not, uh, not ever going to be a deacon. Don't feel called. Don't meet the qualifications, whatever it might be. So I guess this is just for a select few in here who are called to that. 
But that's not the case. Each and every person in the church, whether in the office of a deacon or not, should aspire to these qualities. Said, should seek to operate in the function of service to others. In fact, if the church is to accomplish her miss- mission, then we must all seek to serve in this way. We can't delegate the task of service, of care for one another, only to a select few. But we are to take part in it. We can't just delegate it to the deacons among us, but we are to imitate this as we live in the world today. You want to know a practical way that you can serve the church and help advance the gospel? Seek to serve the needs of the church, the needs of those around you, and promote unity in the church. That's one simple and easy way that you can help to advance the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel. That you can, as the church did here, remove threats and remove obstacles to the gospel. And I'm telling you that that's easy, that's simple. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's difficult because you know what it means? It means taking your preferences, your desires, even your time, and putting it to the side. And counting others as more significant than you, as Paul says in the book of Philippians. And that's a difficult thing, isn't it? Especially when we feel that we've been wronged, when we feel that we've been hurt. It's a difficult thing to put aside our feelings, our emotions, our needs for the needs of others. And yet it is exactly in these kinds of acts to seek to preserve the unity in the church and to meet the needs of those around us that is going to help to remove obstacles and threats to the gospel. You see, because to serve others, to meet the needs of the poor, the widows, to bring help to the hurting in our midst is a way for believers to provide a physical display of what the gospel does. Because that's what the gospel is, isn't it? Isn't that what Christ has done for us? We have come weak, poor, needy. And let me ask you this. Is there a spiritual need in here among all of those who belong to Christ that has not been met by him? Not a one. Indeed, all I have is Christ. He is enough. He satisfies all of our needs, even our deepest needs, deepest longings, and he's done so at the sacrifice of himself. So we see then that as we seek to serve the poor, serve the needs of those around us, put others above ourselves, we act as Christ. We imitate Christ in that way, and we help to display the gospel to the world around around us as we preach it to them as well, so that they not only get to hear it, but see it in action also. This is what the gospel does for us. It's like the the song that that we sometimes sing. It's an old song called Come Ye Sinner. And in this old hymn, we see these words. This is the display of what the gospel is, what it does. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance Every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, 
Oh, there are 10,000 charms. When you hear the gospel in that song, how we come to Christ poor, needy, weak, wounded, thirsty, filled with needs, every single one of them is met in Christ Jesus. So church family, the call is for us now today, whether you're in the office of a deacon or not, to then take what we know to be true of the gospel, how it meets our needs, and there is no lacking in Christ Jesus, and to do everything that we can do to put that on display for the world around us, to remove all need, all lack in the church, in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then beyond that, once those needs are met, to begin to take that to the world around us as well, to meet the needs of all that we see, so that the world will look at us and judge us accordingly by our love for one another. And in that, they might see the gospel proclaimed as we preach it, as we pray, as we declare it to them also. You see, you can never have one without the other, right? As much as this is a, a sermon about service, about our actions, about our deeds, we know that it only works when it is accompanied by the gospel. It's only going to be effective in the world around us if the gospel is being preached as needs are being met. You can't have one without the other. Because as much as you might meet people's needs, if the gospel is absent, then again, you have left them dead. You have left them without hope. We need to both declare to the world around us the hope that we have in Christ Jesus and then display it for them in our lives as we interact with one another and meet the needs of one another. Let's pray.